Welcome to Knowledge Counts, a podcast of the Canadian Institute of Quantity Surveyors. I'm Wendy Hobbs, and today we're talking to Neve Necronin about claims resolution. Claims are an inevitable part of construction. Neve, what can we do as professionals in the industry to protect ourselves when that happens? So I'm glad you've asked this question because this is the, the one of the primary ones we get from other contractors. Um, there are several things you need to do to protect yourself. Firstly, from a claim, and then secondly, so that you get you know the most positive outcome in the event you actually go to formal dispute resolution. So I guess the difference, we'll start with the difference between a claim and a dispute. So a claim is we're, we're on site, you know, I'm the contractor, you're the owner, whatever, and we, we can't agree on something like a change order. And we use the contract to go through our claims resolution procedures. I, you know, perhaps I'm the contractor and I put in the change order and a few days goes by and I, I, I put in my schedule assessment and my cost assessment or whatever, and you disagree with that and it goes up to maybe senior management level and now we're hitting maybe mediation. And when we start hitting mediation and past that, we're looking at arbitration and litigation. Now we've gone into a formal dispute. So the contract can no longer really support us. We're now looking to other initiatives to support us, like whatever it is, maybe it's arbitration or maybe it's the state or litigation. So that's first, that's the primary difference now between a claim and a dispute. Um, so we need to look at the information that we have at hand, like I said, to ensure that we don't get to a dispute firstly, that we basically just stay in claims and that we can get a positive outcome for ourselves. And then if we do go to a dispute, we can still, we have all the information we have to get to a positive outcome. One of the primary things that I see is that um, a lot of companies are still working with the old school method. We shake hands, you know, we have an agreement. It's a kind of a, like a, a gentleman's agreement that I'm going to do it for a certain price and schedule. And really the terms and conditions of things like invoicing or if there's a change or how we manage our teams, that kind of those smaller but very important terms aren't kind of negotiated well or they have put terms in the contract but they're so wishy-washy and grey that their definition is not clearly understood by either party. Now we're moving from that but that is very visible still. So coming from that then is all your record keeping. So it's the records that are going to save you. Whether you're at a claim or you're at a dispute, your records will save you. So we're looking at things like productivity, as simple as your diaries and as simple as you're taking photographs. I find that a lot of clients that come to us, they haven't done any of this, but they feel that they're entitled to some sort of um, remuneration or relief from schedule. However, they, they lack the information and the documentation to support this. And so the burden of proof, if you're the person bringing that dispute, or even the claim, the burden of proof is on you to prove that you've been hard done by or, you know, your productivity was low because maybe drawings, design, material, etc. didn't come in. Um, so you have to be aware that, you know, you need to keep your own records. And sometimes the owner as well, they will they will come looking for support on a claim or a dispute. And because they're the owner, they feel like they don't need to keep records, but also they haven't asked for the records. So they have absolutely no information, only that the project was late and that they've shelled out all this money. So if you're looking at anything to do with claims management or dispute management, record keeping, you want to start there. And I will say this, throughout the, the length of this podcast and even throughout the length of your career. This is something I say to people when I give my presentations. 
who are you in the room? So maybe you're the engineer, maybe you're the quantity surveyor, maybe you're the manager, or the PM, the construction manager, whatever. Who are you in the room? When I come as a consultant and I sit across from you and we're putting your claim and your dispute together and I say, where are the records? What records should you personally be holding? So, for example, if you're the site quantity surveyor, you might be the person with all the change orders, all the backup, all the daily timesheets and maybe some photographs. You should be walking the site weekly, etc. You know, but if I come to you and you're that rank and you say, well, I don't have those records, you know, you really have to look at this personally when it comes to documentation and, and identify who you are. In the past, contract negotiations were often based on a handshake or other less formal agreements. Are there different issues with more formal contracts or are the issues similar? That's a great question. So, um, yes, you strangely, you will still see issues with both types of contracts, whether it's been prepared by a lawyer or it's a standard form of contract in comparison with kind of the old school handshake. So one of the things to watch out for, and again, like I said, like, who are you in the room? The lawyer puts the contract together, but the scope of work, which is usually put together by the technical team, um, that forms part of the contract. It's part of the contract documentation. And most of the information you really want to see is in the scope of work. But very rarely will the lawyer help you draft that. So any kind of gray areas will kind of pop up there. And when I say gray areas, I'm talking about in every contract, there's this relationship between you and the opposite number, whether it's they're providing materials or drawings or they're kind of uh, signing off your invoices, whatever. You know, you're not left alone. You know, you're being babysat the whole time or you're babysitting. So, you know, you have to ensure that there are no gray areas. So for a good example would be, you know, drawings shall come in four weeks um, before, you know, commencement of such and such. And what sometimes we'll see is drawings will come in within a reasonable period. And, and that's fine. One can say reasonable period, but there's absolutely no definition. So how do you schedule that well? Now, I will say the CCDC and the standard forms of contract are good because people have worked with them for many years. And so they know kind of what every term means and in the UK where I trained it's mostly standard forms of contract and the CCDC does come from that so the language is a little bit simpler I mean sometimes it can be difficult but it's a little bit simpler and it's kind of easier to understand what we find with those that are prepared by lawyers the bespoke contracts for certain projects is the language is hugely difficult and it's not been tested by the courts. So you're, it's interpretation of a certain clause, you know, can be vid very difficult to understand. And, and I think one needs to remember as well, when we come up to that stage in uh, procurement and tendering, and we're nearly there, and, you know, we basically, it's, it's you and us, and all we have to do now is sign the contract. You know, we have all our bonds in place and our insurance, and we're really ready to go. People get so happy and emotional that they've won this project and they kind of forget to read the fine print and I understand that you want to keep your people employed and whatever but just changing a few uh, you know uh, sentences and including a few caveats of what you are preparing what you're excluding what you're including that can save you so much heartache further down the line. The term scope of work continues to be a pitfall in many contracts Neve has some suggestions before you negotiate in this and other complicated areas. Uh, depending how you're doing it, yeah, it can be uh, the scope of work can be prepared by, I suppose, by anybody. So when, when we ask who should prepare it, yeah, professional. And I suppose that would be anybody on site because the definition of a professional like wanders, you know, and we say maybe a competent person. 
And some people think that means degrees and other people think that means, you know, having 20 years experience on site. So this is my interpretation of what we should do. So when I worked on the Olympic Park for London 2012, I was um, a deputy bid manager for the London Legacy. So the Olympic Games happened and then we had to change the whole Olympic Park so that it could be utilized by the community moving forward. And so you can imagine trying to put together the scope of work and all your inclusions and exclusions on venues on bridges, on roads. Not one person can do it. And they had a team and everyone on the team had to read everybody else's work. And you would be surprised with what an engineer would come up with for commercial exclusions and what a quantity surveyor would come up with for things like utilization of cranes and can we can we use this here, can we move it down? Because everyone has this out of the box kind of idea. Now, not every project can afford to have, you know, five to 10 people working on every, you know, um, procurement strategy and every tendering submission. But whatever your construction team is to work on that, be you the owner or the contractor, you all need to read everything. So here is the problem that I see that needs to be changed. People either read the contract or they read the scope of work and they do not read both. And in the middle, that's where everything will fall. When I do lecture for, I do um, some kind of like one hour to one day presentations with uh, with companies and we kind of find out their, their gray areas and try to support them. And the first question I ask when I walk into the room, who's read the contract? And everyone will put their hand up. And that that is a signal to me to point at those people and ask them specific questions. And what I find out afterwards is they've only read the section that applies to them. Engineers will read the section to do with groundworks and quantity surveyors will read the section to do with perhaps invoicing. So no one has read everything fully. And then when you go to scope of works, half the people have even touched on it because they get that emotional sense that we've, we've won the job and we've been doing this for years and it's totally fine. I know you've been building it for years, you're fantastic, but how are you able to build it within the constraints of this contract? So when I say contract, make sure we all understand that's all of the contract documents, that's all of the drawings, that's the contract itself, and that's your scope of work. So it it, it is more than just your 30-page contract. Words like reasonable appear in many contracts, but because they lack clear definition, they can lead to more claims. Is there a way to add more clarity to contracts? They're like filler words. And so he, so when we talk about words like reasonable that don't really have um, a universal uh, meaning for, for want of people like, like me and you, here's the problem for me. So English isn't my first language. It's my primary language now, um, but it's not my, my first language. And that's really useful for me because I learn a word and I Google it or I Wikipedia it and then I know exactly what it means. And I need to know exactly the definition. When I look at things like reasonable, the definition is is very much derived from circumstance. And so circumstances change. So here's the problem with it with claims. Claims and dispute cost you money, whether they cost you time and dollars, or they cost you three vice presidents working on this and having a senior meeting, you know, claims and disputes will cost you money. So when you come to a word like reasonable, where you have interpreted one way and I interpret another way, just getting the definition of that word is going to cost us money. And we don't want to go there. So here's the thing with claims and disputes. We don't ever want to go to a claim or dispute. We'll happily negotiate on site. Maybe there's an issue there and that's okay. But formal dispute resolution, where you tie up a project team for years, that's no one gains from that. The only person against that is me because that's my job and not not trying to put myself out of a job here, but it's 
you win nothing from it. It drains the company and it drains you emotionally. So you want to avoid, you know, gray area words like reasonable, because just to interpret what that word means might end you up in, in some sort of a dispute. I understand that when we come to standard forms of contract, they're used there. And so why, why, why not put in a caveat? Like one, when one is tendering, they should be putting in their list of inclusions and exclusions and their interpretations. There's absolutely no issue with that. And if you feel like you need support, there's in-house legal counsel that can write this for you. So when it comes to like a reasonable time, you can define that whatever a month, six weeks, you don't have to put it down to the hour or the day, but just give yourself an idea for like as the owner, you're entitled to know when things are going to be finished. And as the contractor, you're entitled to be able to schedule well. So both of you want the same end game. I think people think they're super smart when they put in words like that because they're going to catch somebody out. But when we when this words like this do go to formal dispute resolution, the arbitrator or the judge will look to the intentions of both the parties at the start. And so he will take a very he or she will take a very, very overview look on this. He won't say, ha ha. Oh, God, that lawyer was very, very smart now said the word reasonable. So that gives them about a year. That's not the case. You know, you know, you're better off just being being very strict about the timelines that you want and watch out for these words, be they in the scope of work or any of your other contract documents and just try and define them at the start because they're not going to save you in the long run. Despite both parties' best intentions, sometimes claims arise out of unforeseeable circumstances. Neve talks about how to deal with these situations. I have a, a great example of that. So on um, London 2012, on the Olympics, when we started excavating, so if you're not familiar with the site, the Stratford site was an industrial area that um, had kind of been used as a factory and a bit of a dumping ground. So the Olympic Committee had decided, like, we'll regenerate this whole area and we'll use it for the Olympic Park and all the venues. And then it will be a regenerated area for, you know, people, for the community to utilize. So you're right. We, when I say we, I mean, like, everybody who worked on the Olympics, like, one assumed that when the contract was drawn up and we used a standard form of contract, like, you've hit on anything, you know, because we knew the soil would be contaminated and we were going to reuse and as much of the soil as possible. So we had to, like, include that in our, in our schedule, whatever. We weren't aware that we would find archaeological site and we weren't aware that we would find some bodies that were perhaps left there from some murders previously and I just can't fathom myself even writing that into the contract but that would just kind of it falls under force majeure because you have to stop the work and it wasn't it, it wasn't um you know anticipated by either party but the problem with something like the olympics like while the contractor might be entitled to relief from schedule like there is a definite end date where people are going to be running you know like around that track or swimming in that pool so that that did happen on, on the Olympic Park a couple of times where we had to shut down sites completely. I think for the archaeological site, it was six months. But I will say this, they managed that site very well. And we had um, a, a dispute resolution board in-house. So for those of you who are not aware what a dispute resolution board is, it's usually made up of three people. And they usually have a, a good background in kind of claims and cost and engineering management. And they are there for the whole project. And they get to know the teams. And if anything like a claim arises, they support us in negotiating and mediating. So there's no stopping of work. Well, I mean, one can stop work, but there's no need. You know, we, we keep they keep things moving along. So they were very much able to support everybody. And as well with things like that, where it's absolutely nobody's fault and everyone is of sound mind. And by that, I mean, you don't have a crazy owner looking for money or a crazy contractor who walks offside. 
there were so many sites available there was other work we could go and do and then there was like we were able to accelerate the works when when we were able to do so so they really supported us in getting the work done at the end you know but yeah that that does happen and then it falls under a force majeure clause so which is a, a good kind of uh, bridge to that you want to make sure that your force majeure clause is is nice a lot of times force majeure isn't just when I ask people what force majeure is they, they just say like fire <laughs> um, it's it's more than that but what you want to look into or acts of God I also get like what you want to look into is does it include things like labor strikes or lack of labor shortage of labor so the first case of things like force majeure was after the second world war there was a shortage of men and so does that get you out of your contract because there's a shortage shortage of men I suppose in that case it does but here in Alberta it may not, but you just might have to pay more. So is, is that a shortage or is it your, your lack of paying the correct amount of money? So be careful of that, depending if you're a specialist trade. And also sometimes um, the force majeure clause, you know, it might only give you schedule relief, which in some cases is perfect, but you might need more you might need more than that. You might actually need cost depending on what's, what's going on. On that topic, if I could just jump onto something quickly, if you're not going to read your contract, and I suggest everybody read their contract, but there are certain clauses that you really need to, to be aware of. So I'll just give you a few, a few of them. Force majeure is a good one. What are your responsibilities? What's your opposition's responsibilities? So owner, contractor, subcontractor, whatever. Read both of those and identify what's going to fall between the loop. Look at your change management. Look at your schedule management. Look at your dispute resolution portion and look at termination. Part of this is how can you be terminated? And how can you terminate somebody who's a little bit difficult? Definitely look into that one. Because if you have a sub or a contractor who's just dragging their heels, it's going to cost you money at the end. Whether it's just because your schedule has been blown out of the water or it's because you end up in a dispute. So really look at termination, termination for cause. And the other one then is invoicing. Cash flow is the lifeblood of the industry. So you really want to make sure that you're not going to be stuck either paying too much or not, not getting receipt of payment at the right time. What should someone look for when faced with a dispute resolution? So, and strangely, with dispute resolution clause, um, it's you're looking for the same things you're looking for change management. So here's the thing. A lot of people think that silence is golden or silence, you know, is a definite response. So so I so I'll ask you, I write you a letter and I say we're we're going to dispute. For you, what does silence mean? You do not respond to me. Is that a yes or a no answer? When we look at the contract, the contract is very detailed. And so silence doesn't really tell us anything. So when we, you look at, so my advice now is when you get your contract, do this for change management and do it for dispute resolution. Get out a white sheet of paper and start drawing this out. So what it'll say is something similar, especially CCDC says this, something similar to like, um, you know, if, if there's a claim started or something like that, um, you know, notify the other party. And then it'll say something to, to the effect of that party should respond within five days. And if they don't, X happens. And X could be mediation. And if they do, Y happens. Y could be senior management um, discussion. And if within 10 days there's no resolution after, we'll say, mediation, then you need to, you being the person who's bringing the claim, need to notify the person of your intention to go to arbitration. Now, what happens if within that 10 days you haven't, and I'm just picking 10 off the top of my head, if you haven't sent them a notice saying, we intend to take this to formal dispute resolution, you may have lost your right 
to go to formal dis- you may have lost the whole the whole dispute so the contract is very strict so you have to be aware of your timelines so that's why you want to get out your white piece of paper and like really identify it so one of the first things and maybe we should have spoken about this earlier is you know people get really emotional about claims and they you know like and I understand it like they've worked overtime they've worked weekends they've missed time with their family whatever but they're missing the point the point is entitlement are you actually entitled to any of this so when you look at talk about entitlement you want to look at two things one is the scope of work and the basis of your contract so we'll think of ground conditions and um, you know I took on the burden of unknown ground conditions and then I found really bad ground conditions am I entitled to anything no you took on that burden, you signed the contract for that. But let's say the answer is yes. You did not take on the burden of unknown ground conditions. The other party did. Perfect. And then you go to your, I'm going to issue my change order, send in my change order. Your change order says the exact same thing. It gives you timelines. You know, it's within something like five days of identifying that there's a change, notify the opposing party, whatever. If you fail to do that, have you now waived your right to a change? technically you have maybe they'll let you through maybe there's a reason or whatever but if the contract says notify the other person within that time then you better notify them within that time this is the contract you signed up to so when it comes to claims it's the exact same follow all your timelines to the letter and you know notify in writing whatever the contract tells you to do you need to do it because you may you may have waived your right so like i asked you at the start what does science mean well we're not really sure but i can tell you that if you follow the timelines you have a positive outcome so yeah we need to really manage what the contract says neve sees documentation management as a vital part of the claims process she explains why okay so uh, one of where everything rises and falls is documentation management and i i, I we discussed it earlier and i said uh, you know who are you in the zoo like who are you when it comes to documentation but there there are other things to that so for example, and this is something I've seen several times, and I'm sure it's something I did myself as a, a young engineer on site. Um, when you're sending emails to anybody in your firm or the opposition, whether it's a personal email like, hey, do you want to go for a beer? Or, you know, please see attach something. Stay professional all the time. What we see a lot of is people degrading their own team. And what will happen is the opposition will use that. So let me talk you through the process and then I'll tell you an example that I've come across myself. So the the process is if you're going to formal dispute resolution like arbitration, what will happen is the records will be requested. And oftentimes during the discovery phase, your server might just might be taken and all of your emails for that project will be on it. Don't try and go back now as we're speaking and delete every email you have. That's not going to work like it's, it's all searchable. So be very cautious of what you're doing. So what we found when we were working on a case previously for an owner, we found that the contractor, that there were issues with progress. They weren't tracking progress correctly, the contractor. And as we looked through their emails, I found an email from a senior member of the contracting team to the junior member of the contracting team saying, you know, this mathematics is fourth grade. I can't believe you can't do it. You're so stupid. And that went straight into our dispute document. And we utilize that to say absolutely everything, to say they acknowledge that they're not tracking correctly. They acknowledge that they're not hiring competent persons. They were fully aware at, we'll say 70% of the project that they were not tracking correctly. This this issue was not rectified. Therefore, they knew 
they were aware that they were not going to rectify. And for the remainder of the 30% of the project, uh, they continued to falsely represent progress. So those little emails where you're scathing another person, even if you feel justified, do not send them. If you feel that something that needs to be said, maybe a meeting or a phone call is best, but those kind of emails will take you down and it'll take you down personally as well because you will be named. The other types of documentation I want to jump in on is schedules. Schedules, if you had no other documentation and you just had your schedule in native format, whether it's P6 or it's Microsoft Project, uh, you can do an awful lot with that because you can track progress, you can track milestones, and you can kind of, you know, track where the critical path has changed because maybe something has occurred on site. What I find that lets companies down is, number one, they do not put any change orders on their schedule. You must, the, every contract will tell you to do so. You're not allowed any schedule relief unless that item is on the critical path. So every time you ask for a change order, you submit a change order, you should have a schedule anyway. So that those change orders or any site instructions or anything, I would even go as far as RFIs, but I understand that's too much. They need to go on your contract schedule. Um, your contract schedule cannot be overridden. So we, we see this sometimes with perhaps junior schedulers. Um, instead of like saving a copy of each schedule each month, um, what they'll do is they'll print a PDF of the critical path and then they'll just override each schedule. So whether you're a scheduler or not, as a quantity surveyor, record keeping and schedule management, which forms part of any change management, you need to ensure that the team members are not doing this. This is actually extremely common. So then you end up with only one which I, what I use P6, but you end up with only one P6 schedule and you have no idea if it's real or not, if it's actualized or not. It's just a, a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, a baseline schedule. Uh, lots of contracts don't seem to have it. They seem to have things like uh, milestone dates in the contract itself, but a baseline schedule, sometimes we don't see that. Make sure you have that as detailed as you can possibly get it at the time. And uh, if you need to re-baseline, well, then you need to follow the contract for that because that's e extremely important. Photographs are hugely important. When we come to look at things like your schedule, we are independent consultants. So we don't just take your word for it. So that's what an advocate would do. They would take your word for it and they would use as much information as they can to support your claim. What we will do, we'll take all of the information and we'll identify if you have one. It has happened on occasion where we have to, have to say to clients, you know what, I, I actually think the evidence supports your opposition's claim. And this is our finding and this is our brief and you need to you know do with this what you will but so how we how we do that is we take the schedule and then we take whatever records we have like site daily diaries or you know or file logs or whatever and we, we put that into the schedule to see if your schedule is real or if somebody's just been updating it poorly and photographs are such so useful for that because we can really tell straight away if something is 70% complete. You know, if the roof is on it, that's always a good indication that it's doing well. You know, so always take photographs. Even if you're walking the site for just like five minutes every Friday, just take your phone with you. They're absolutely, you know, super useful. And then your own diary. Make sure you have your own diary. I would suggest just having like a little, you know, one of those black diaries at the side of your desk. And it's not to capture your time. It's not to capture your to-do list. It's just what happened that day. It, just in your world, that can be super useful as well. Dispute resolution boards are not commonly used, but Neve thinks they're an important element in claims disputes. 
So the dis there's two types of boards, the, dis the dispute um, resolution board and the dispute adjudication board. And so that they they start off the same. There's approximately three people on the board and they stay with the project throughout the project life cycle. They get to know the teams. If something crops up, they're there straight away and they kind of support you through it and kind of support a resolution. Now, the difference between the DRB and the DAB is the adjudication board that can actually adjudicate on the matter. So the matter then will be fine, will be um, the, the matter will be decided um, pending another type of formal dispute resolution like arbitration after after the project is completed. So so they can be quite useful because the matter is done and dusted. And with the adjudication board, um, it'll be done and dusted within about 28 days. So really, you know, the project keeps going. The reason they're not used as often is, and we I find this um, an awful lot in construction, is contractors tend to um, pinch the pennies and like spend the pounds. So when I talk about pinching pennies, like the dispute resolution board and the dispute arbitration board, and there have been some studies done on this, for the amount, especially for a major or mega project, for the amount you spend to have those three people there throughout the life cycle of the project, and it is really cost beneficial. However, it's difficult to identify if it's cost beneficial because you have no measured mile, because you probably had no disputes that went to litigation and that stopped it. So you've no measured mile. You can't say, well, the Olympics in Beijing didn't have it and they had X amount of disputes and London did have it and, you know, everything kind of went smooth enough because they, they kind of are different projects, even though they're both Olympics. So when, when we look at kind of uh, construction projects, you know, contractors are... And I say this, you know how um, how big a project is when you walk into the kitchen because it's inversely proportional to the amount of teaspoons they have. So you see, you know, you see people stirring their tea with a fork, like the end of the fork. Well, you're on a mega project then, you know, and that that's the truth. People pinch the pennies and they don't see the worthiness in these. And when it comes to like, oh, let's just get another truck of concrete. Let's just get another better be looking at it than looking for it. They tend to spend the pounds hugely. And that's the case with this. You can't see the benefit. You can only just assume that there was benefit. What advice does Neve have for a new person entering the quantity surveying field? I would suggest to anybody who's doing their professional exam. So I, I myself, I'm, I'm an engineer and then became a chartered quantity surveyor after several years. I would just advise everybody to just try and travel as much as you can. Try and work elsewhere, you know, even if it's just in another province or try and work in another country. The, the information, the learning, the knowledge that you get from working in another place and, and working with other people who do other things is hugely invaluable. And that's the reason I ended up doing my master's in law and doing the quantity surveying exams. I wouldn't have done it had I not had all these different people from different backgrounds. So you're meeting engineers who are pretty good at law and you're meeting quantity surveyors who could literally build a bridge, you know, with their own hands. And you, you just you want to be them, you know, and it just strives you to be better if you kind of stick in the same location. Like for me, if I think that I stayed in the same small town in Ireland, I probably wouldn't be as good an engineer. And maybe now I'm ready to move back there. But, uh, you know, at least I, I'm a better version of what I could have been. Kind of like the dispute resolution boards. <laughs> um, I will say this. If you are hit, try and get involved in claims as soon as possible. So by that, I mean, if a change order comes up and things are being difficult, jump, jump right in. You know, meet with your opposition, 
do up your, your information, get your photographs, try and prove your point as best you can. You cannot start this too early. If a claim arrives on the site that you're on, it, it, it takes a whole project team for a project to go down the toilet. It doesn't take one individual. And I've spoken to people who say, well, I've never had a claim. And I think to myself, that doesn't mean you're better. It means you're inexperienced. Because those who have gone through claims, be it just something you resolved yourself, like a change order or something more serious, you know, you, you're, you've got so much more experience now. And moving forward, even just for tendering or procurement, like you're more aware of what you need. So don't run away from claims and disputes, you know, meet them head on, do all of your homework, you know, and, uh, you know, it'll, it'll stand to you. You'll be a much better QS for it. Thanks, Neve, for joining us to discuss claims resolution. For Knowledge Counts, I'm Wendy Hobbs.